Charles Simeon tonight. He was born September 24th, 1759, just to kind of put some um, historical context around that. Edwards had just died. The first Great Awakening was getting well underway. Um, he died November 13th, 1836 at 77, and he was still preaching uh, just a couple months before he passed away. As far as his family, his father was a wealthy attorney, non-religious. His We know nothing about his mom. At seven years old, he went to the illustrious Eton boarding school, which has a very, very rich history. Uh, he was good in sports. He was excelling, but he showed zero interest in religion during his youth. In college, he went to another prestigious institution, the King's College, which was part of the University of Cambridge in England, uh, where he was saved and he began teaching there. And that's where kind of a springboard for ministry for him. He also never married the whole time he was there, which is kind of ironic. Anybody ever heard of John Stott, another good Christian author? Um, so Mr. Stott, uh, probably one of the foremost authorities on Simeon, and it's weird how their lives parallel um, he never, Stott never married either, and Stott was, uh, had some connections with Cambridge and was a prolific author and writer as well, but he was very kind of, um, he talked about that, you know, it was kind of intentional that he just never married and just didn't really pursue it and thought, felt it was his calling to do that. And so interesting fact, because last, seems like everybody else we've had for these seven weeks have all been married and had families and stuff, but that isn't always the case, right? It doesn't have to be. Hey there. Do you have treats? <gasps> treats. <laughs> Walks in with a Cornell shirt on. We're gonna channel Andy Bernard right now. Stop everything. We gotta get coffee. Wait, don't you have coffee? Water. Water. You go downstairs. The Keurig's on. Sorry, folks on YouTube. You don't get treats. <laughs> Thank you, Bridget. That's amazing. All right, so some key life themes. Of course, we want to look at his conversion. He, oh, they're warm. He entered college as an unbeliever uh, at Cambridge. They made the comment that whatever was going on with the Great Awakening evidently never made it to Cambridge because there was no other believers around, including him. But... Being the, the climate and the culture that it was about religion, when he got to Cambridge, he was, it was mandatory to take the Lord's Supper. And he didn't know much about the Lord's Supper, but he knew enough that it terrified him. And he knew enough that he should not be taking the Lord's Supper as an unbeliever or with sin in his heart. Um, he knew just enough to be scared. He knew that it was very dangerous to eat the Lord's Supper as an unbeliever or a hypocrite. So he just tried to make himself better. He tried to uh, make himself more holy. He had one religious book, which was called The Whole Duty of Man, which George Whitfield said it's good to start fires with, and that's about it. Um, it didn't help him understand the gospel at all or what he needed to do. And, and let's read his actual, his own account from his own words of his conversion, as we have been doing with others. 302. Thank you. So this is uh, this Passion Week kind of leading up to Easter in March of 1779. 
In Passion Week, I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, so he sought out other materials. I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought came into my mind, what may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay all my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And the Wednesday began to have hope of mercy. And on the Thursday, that hope increased. And Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And then on Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4th, I awoke early with these words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. So once again, another guy who was kind of struggling to come to terms with his own sin, right? And realize that he had no no possible way to, I love that you're all chewing right now. It's so cool. No possible way to reconcile this in and of himself. We're sorry. Sorry. No, it's cool. <laughs> Believe me, I'll have one later. Um, I just have a, a, a pork drop. So that's just, oh, good, good. Just, you know, it's up to you. Not, not doing the cold cooking. But thank you. So you could see that this, this conversion, again, was kind of a very dramatic experience, as we've seen all along, right? Um, it had an immediate effect on his life. He lived very simply, whereas before he kind of enjoyed the life of privilege. Now he lived very simply and very meagerly after that. His brother, even to the extent that his brother left him a fortune, which he basically turned down. And when his brother died, he left him a fortune. He basically turned it down, but used some of it to start the Simeon Trust, which is actually still in effect today, if other people know about that. That is also where um, there's also, we'll see in a minute, the idea of training men, training women to understand the Bible, to be able to teach it, training men to be pastors, all that, which was a passion of his heart uh, to do that as well. He started to evangelize his own family. Some of them came to faith. Some of them did not. But we saw a dramatic uh, conversion of Mr. Mr. Simeon. So some observations and applications from us, so for us. The Lord's Supper. We're going to do it on Sunday. Not to be taken lightly. Not to be taken lightly. Mandatory. Right? I don't get that. I was raised with this <laughs> church thing, but yeah. it was never mandatory. Uh, well, and, and it, you had the, to be confirmed into the church before you were allowed to. Yeah, it might have been that they wanted to go through that process, but the, the dean, uh, the provost of the school said, going to have to take the Lord's Supper. And they're rightfully so terrified him. So, Noel, you said not to be taken lightly. Good. Reflection. Reflection. Okay. What else? What, what's, what's the overall purpose of what we're doing at the Lord's Table? Yeah. Remembrance. Yep. Uh, it's kind of like baptism. There's a whole bunch of different theological perspectives on the Lord's Table as there are baptism, but remembrance is certainly key, and we get that right from the Bible where Jesus you know, said, obviously do this in remembrance of me, and talking about the um, body being, his body broken for sin, being reflected in the bread, and his blood being reflected in the wine, and the juice as we have it, right? So yeah, we would do well to balance those things when we come to the Lord's table, 
not to be overly fearful and not to be overly guilty. I can remember sometimes in my youth or some other church services where it just kind of bordered on depressing mm-hmm. the Lord's table, right? <clears throat> so maybe it was a little more balanced that way. And then I've certainly seen seen uh, other churches and other things where it goes the other way, where it's very flippant and it's very just, oh, we should do this and pass out the elements and there's not much time for reflection or anything. So, yeah. So, sure. Well, besides, you know, us coming before the Lord um, in repentance, unrepentant sin, but we can also be thankful, you know, because yeah. he sent his only son for us that we would Absolutely. be his children and he drew, mm-hmm. he drew us to himself. So, you know, yep. it's also, you know, not only do I have that time of repentance, but I also am so grateful yeah. and thankful to the Lord for what he's, he's done for me, you know. So, it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of both. That sense of our, our sin should yeah. give way to worship. Yep. should give way to what we've been forgiven. That's why it's called good news of the gospel. That's right. What about what he was talking about? He's, he stumbled on in his conversion, this idea of uh, the scapegoats, the idea of Yom Kippur, right? The day of atonement that he stumbled on in, the, in, the, in Judaism, in the Old Testament. Which we then, as he so connected the dots, right, that is then what Christ did for us, bearing our sin on the cross. So what is then substitutionary atonement? And what scriptures can we go to to support such a view? Substitutionary atonement's important. What does that mean for us with Jesus Christ? That he died for our sins. That he died for our sins, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, in place of us. Yep. I'd say that in our place. Yeah. Yep. That he took our substance. And you see how, how much that thought, right, when it clicked in his mind, he was just like, you mean I can lay my sins on someone else? Mm-hmm. You mean I don't have to bear them myself? And that was what then propelled him to understand the gospel in that and, and run to Christ in good news. Yeah. What about scriptures? What, what scriptures? This is a doctrine that's under attack today in the liberal and progressive church. What do we think? What other what 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 scriptures could you go to? Your your friend goes all progressive on you and says, "Ah, that's just cosmic child abuse. He didn't need to do that. It's so brutal. I can't believe in a God that would nail his own son to a cross. It's awful." First John four ten. First John four ten. What does that in say? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, big Bible word for food. Ooh. sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the satisfaction of God's wrath. He propitiated God's wrath. What else? Any other thoughts where we can go to in Scripture to remind ourselves and encourage ourselves, right? John 3.16. John 3.16. Okay. He gave his only begotten son. Okay. Which is those that shall perish. Yeah. The idea that he gave himself for those, right? For the world, right? <coughs> Um, there's always Isaiah 53. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, right? First Peter picks that up. Yeah. And also, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, John 10, 17 through 19. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Mm. Yeah, Jesus, the the free will that he has. That gets lost in this argument, right? right? That that God just sent his son to die, like it right. was against his will. 
And that's a, a great verse to refresh our minds of the truth. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm totally on board with this plan. I'm doing it willingly out of the love that I have in my heart. And First, he has the authority to lay it down and take it up again. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body. Pretty clear. New mm-hmm. Testament reference. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, for by his wounds you have mm-hmm. been healed. Right, that idea of the substitution, the making atonement for God's wrath. What about the resurrection? Today's Ash Wednesday. Even though we don't celebrate it uh, officially, so to speak, it is important to kind of look at some of these dates on the church calendar, the liturgical calendar. What's Ash Wednesday mean? Go to church and they put the little dot on your forehead. A little cross of ashes. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a really stupid meme today that said... uh, all single ladies looking for good Catholic boys, God mark them all today for you. <laughs> the internet. Um, but what does that mean? Why do we why do we put the little well what we don't, but why do others put the, the ash on their foreheads? I know all us non-denominational people are struggling right now. I don't know. Maybe it's <laughs> to mark that they're God's child, even though. Well, you think about, right, and ashes, right? The idea of ashes, most of the time it's sackcloth and ashes. It's it's something that's repenting or grieving or sorrowful. Sometimes you're fasting. It is traditionally held with a a time of fasting. And it's traditionally the start of Lent. And so Lent then is 40 days that leads up to Easter. And that idea that, okay, we should be thinking about this in very intentional ways. Did that originate with Catholicism, with the the Catholic Church? Where did, that, where did that originate from? Probably. I mean, I'm not sure what date or what century that started, that tradition of Lent. I'd have that, to look that, that up. That's what it came from, basically the Catholic, Catholic religion? I, I would imagine so. I, you know, it probably came in early church. I don't know. My bet, second, third century, I don't know. It's a, when I worked in the hospital, um, where they came in and they gave ashes to everybody Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Just uh, they went right up and down the... Yeah. Um, I was in a Catholic hospital. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, everybody... Everybody got them. Yeah, if you wanted them. Yeah. Um, very embarrassing moment in my youth. I went into a store and I was married. I wasn't that, I wasn't that young. But I was very far from the Lord and this <laughs> lovely old lady behind the counter, I'm like, you have something on your forehead. Let me do she looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and she had some sort of Irish accent or something. And she was like, it's Ash Wednesday. Okay, I don't know what that means. <laughs> anyway. But it's leading up to Easter. It's this idea of the anticipation period leading up to Easter. Like Christmas and Easter. Like there are no two bigger Christian holidays, right? This is the other one. This is the other bookend, right? You got to go on Christmas and you got to go on Easter. That's how you're a priester. You got to go to those two services in order to tell mom, right? Why was Simeon so excited uh, about the resurrection? Why was he so excited about Easter? Remember what it was, what he was, what his comments were? I mean, that was like, that was the day. Like it was building Wednesday. He said there was a little bit of hope. And then Thursday where there was more hope. But then Sunday he could barely contain himself. 
kind of the the wrap up of uh, Felicia, the whole substitutory substitutionary atonement. Yeah. I mean, it was the. It worked, right? It worked. It's here. Christ right. was risen from the dead. It, right? It's here. And so therefore, he can then walk in newness of life. Like, it, it actually makes sense. It totally clicked, the idea of that. The old person's dead, and I'm united to Christ in his death, and then now I'm united to Christ in new life, and I can walk as a new person. Dead, 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 and raised. Yep. Yeah, just, yep. just like, we'll be dead in the grave, but then be, be raised up, and, you know, sure. to meet our soul. Yep. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To meet, to meet Jesus in the sky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The idea of, of new life and then eternal life of what awaits yeah. us, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, just some some things to think about. I thought it was interesting how we were we were studying uh, Simeon today, and this was his conversion during Holy Week, and this kind of kicked off the season of Holy Week with Ash Wednesday today. So just to get your, your minds thinking about what's coming 40 days from now in, uh, in the resurrection. And we should we should obviously continue to be excited about the resurrection. The resurrection, resurrection is the linchpin. Like Paul said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we too should are all or most to be pitied, right? And that's that's the thing, right? Um, we kind of have to have that attitude that you know, it, like Paul, like if Christ really didn't rise from the dead, I'm still in my sins, right? So it is a colossally important. It's the finale. It is. It is. Yeah. It's the it's linchpin of everything. Is what it is. Now he's actually when Jesus comes again, maybe, but yeah, yeah. Oh, we're moving toward that. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're moving yeah. towards that. That's the yeah, with all the fireworks and everything. Yeah, and that's our <laughs> whole redemptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. redemptive movement. But certainly, it's where it, it, it's certainly that that whole it sets it all thing the whole thing off. Yeah, at that point, because Jesus, yeah, well, without without here. Christ completing the work, right? You know, we have no hope, and then. The Father resurrecting Christ from the grave, showing that he accepted the sacrifice then, and then we can share in that new life. That's yeah. That's where it all hangs on. All right, so he was very, very, uh, he had longevity in ministry, for sure. And some of that ministry, really, a lot of those years were under fierce oppression. He started teaching at the university. He also started attending a local church. He was soon ordained as an Anglican deacon, an Anglican deacon is a little bit different than our deacons, much broader, though still service-oriented. They did a lot in the service of the church as far as like sometimes they would even preach or help serving communion, the Lord's table, things like that. They would definitely do things with serving the poor and that sort of thing, but all in kind of the place of the priest and the authority of the priest, right? Um, <clears throat> he was interim preacher for one summer at one church named St. Edward's. And then he was called to pastor the Trinity Church at age 22. And that's the one church that he served in for 54 years. Mm. Which is just like amazing. That would be cool. I probably don't have 54 years that I could do at Highlands. Especially that would make me 105. Well, a lot of us will be dead. Right? <laughs> yeah. So you get more Definitely wouldn't be making sense at 105. So, but was he ever the main pastor, or he was always a cleric? No, he was the main pastor okay. of Trinity Church uh, when he nice. took that call. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure which Trinity Church, but well, yeah. if he was at Cambridge or Queens College, 
Kennedy would be the big dog. Okay. And that's where he's buried still. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, I'm not sure of the exact history of Trinity, but he was there for a really, really long time. And there was fierce opposition to him. Um, he served there, of course, for 54 years. He was not wanted as the pastor. They wanted someone else to be the pastor, but he was appointed the pastor. And so the first 12 years were fiercely opposed. People were locking their pew boxes. If you've ever heard that story, this, that's where that comes from. Pew boxes, I know we have chairs, so I was gonna get a picture of it and I didn't have time. So, you know, obviously pews, you sit in them, but every pew is then encased with this, uh, like a box, a wooden box. And you open the door and then you sit in your pew. It's really weird. They have them at chapel, the broadest chapel in uh, at Southern. And when we go there for chapel, all you sit down, all you see are heads. <laughs> it's like right up to this club little. Church. Oh, the club church has pew boxes? They're, they're lower, but their pew boxes are very, very narrow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like comforting and strange all at the same time. But that was the style back then. And so you then, you had like people sit. I know you guys have your places where you sit, but they had pew boxes that were like their deal. They owned them. They owned them, they rented them. And if it's a Trinity, it's, it's like a box seat. It's a Duke's and it's a box seat. Game. Yep. And so they said, we know what we'll do. We'll just lock all our pew boxes. And so the people literally locked their pew boxes so that people could not come in to sit down and hear Simeon preach. So he said, fine. I'll br he bought benches at his own expense and he lined the aisles with all these benches and people would either stand and hear him preach or they would sit on these benches and hear him preach. And of course the church wardens didn't want that either so they eventually took the benches and threw them out into the street. And so people would stand and would listen to him preach. This was for 12 years. <laughs> 12, I, 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 I wouldn't even make it one year. I'd be like, okay, you guys don't want me? I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> right? Did they give reasons? Yes, the reason was they didn't like his gospel-centered preaching. Wow. Oh, they didn't read him. They Oh, that's what Mr. Piper wrote. There were literally riots in the street outside of Trinity Church. Uh, he recalls times where rocks were thrown through the windows. Wow. They were worshiping. So, and again, why his biblical preaching and his uncompromising stand as an evangelical. So he would stand on the word of God. He preached through the entire Bible, probably more than once in 54 years. Mm -hmm. And people were just like, that's not what we want. We want something else. We don't want you. We want a different guy who will preach differently. And what do you think? And they didn't, they didn't want anybody new in the club? They just wanted... Could be. They definitely had the guy that was one of the... Either, I think he was another deacon. They wanted him. And uh, they even had an afternoon and evening service. I think they started at like 4 o'clock or something. And now this is his church. And they wouldn't let him preach the afternoon church service. They let this other guy do it in hopes that then he would become appointed to the senior pastor. That plan didn't work either. And eventually Simeon started doing the afternoon service So they didn't well. want new people in the church. They just wanted... Yeah, I mean, traditions die hard, right? You want to hear what you want to hear. People think they have too much control over the church. And... Trinity is historically been very Catholic. That's where the dukes and duchesses knew their oh, well, There you go. They were more nobility. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So, yeah, some interesting, interesting times. So how was he so faithful in the midst of this? 
one of the things that I appreciated from the book was that uh, Piper said he wasn't emotionally fragile in that sense. I like that, that term. We need to be less emotionally fragile and more anti-fragile. There's a, a book that I haven't read, read by, uh, wrote, written by a non-believer, but the book is called Anti-Fragile. Talks about it in the, that book I gave you, Rhoda, The Coddling of the American Mind. Talks about that whole concept of, you know, maybe we're just coddling our kids a little bit too much and it's having the opposite effect on society, which we now can see. He knew this. He's just like, I, I, I need to be anti-fragile. I'll read you a little bit from the book. Um, that, is, that is pretty convicting. This is what I found that this is Piper talking in my Pastoral disappointments and discouragement, there is a great power for perseverance in keeping before me the life of a person who surmounted great obstacles in obedience to God's call by the power of God's grace. I need this inspiration from another century because I know that I am, in great measure, a child of my times. And one of the most pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt. We pout and we mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened, and it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. A typical emotional response to trouble in the church is to think, well, if that's the way they feel about me, I'll just find another church. We see very few healthy, happy examples today of those whose lives spell out in flesh and blood the rugged words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When historians list the character traits of America in the last third of the 20th century, commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on the list. <clears throat> the list will begin with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem. It will be followed by the subheadings of self-assertiveness, self-enhancement, and self-realization. And if, we're if we think that we are not the children of our times, let us simply test ourselves to see how we respond when people reject our ideas or spurn our good efforts or misconstrue our best intentions. We need help here. We are surrounded by and are part of a society of emotionally fraught quitters. <laughs> Welcome to John Piper. The spirit of the age is too much in us. We need to spend time with the kind of people, whether dead or alive, whose lives prove there is another way to live. Scripture says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So I want to hold up for us the faith and patient endurance of Charles Simeon for our inspiration and imitation. Yeah, Piper poetically convicts us all in that, right? The idea of emotional fragility. He, um, he also just was very, very faithful to preaching God's word and very steady-handed in that. He said, you should preach God's word and it's the ministry of the word and prayer that is gonna change hearts. Mm -hmm. Or not. You know, I don't have to be so worried about changing their minds or changing them, they liking me or whatever else. He's just gonna do his thing. Whether they lock the pews or whether they throw rocks or whether they do whatever, he's just gonna keep preaching. Hmm. He also had a very long range view of retirement. 
Um, and the idea retire. that he, what's that? He didn't retire. He didn't retire. Yeah, basically. And that clashes with, again, our culture, the idea of, you know, I got to make it to whatever age it is and then walk on the beach and collect seashells for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> I don't know. You know, we got we to gotta remember that. Although, although probably most people that are retired, I think, are more busy now that they're retired than they're not. But. What about some observations and applications that we can take from this? 54 years in one church. Twelve of them in utter opposition. He just kept preaching because he yep. knew God would do the work. Mm -hmm. you know, he planted the seeds, but God made them grow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What were you going to say, Sharon? Sure? I was just thinking too how um, how Jesus was despised and rejected. So yeah, he's just like you know what they you know they didn't want Christ. So you know what I don't care what they, they don't want me either. And yeah. you know Jesus said they're going to. They hated me first, so yeah. they hate you. I mean, you would think from a church congregation, people that are going to church would yeah. have that kind of attitude. Sometimes, but, right, we, we have our expectations misaligned. Yeah, right. Exactly. right. But the Pharisees had that kind of attitude, exactly. and they were the religious elite of the time, you know. I wonder how he would deal with the passage. If you get rejected, dust off your sandals and go to the next town. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. exactly. You know, you know, what, what, I would have yeah. thought about that verse. I think he would do a lot of praying, and I think if he felt the Lord was right. moving him on, he'd probably move on. But yeah, but it had, he, it had to be God's decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah not yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sherry, the passage you were thinking of um, was what? Yeah, first, uh, it's it's in First Peter, um, but also the idea of uh, well, being zealous for what is good. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I mean, think about that. Mm -hmm. He's like, okay, cool. They're locking the pews. They're throwing rocks through my windows. I'm suffering for righteousness' sake. And in that, somehow, is blessing. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the hope is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we'll see in a moment that's exactly what he did because he refused to go at them in that way. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer than doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. He basically outlasted them with good. He just refused to stoop to their level. And he outlasted, just preached the word, just immersed himself in prayer, just did what God called him to do, and he didn't get wrapped up in the drama. You know, what, a, what an amazing idea. Right? There had to have been like some people who were like, you know, listening to him. Sure. Do, you, do we have any idea like how, like, like how many, like well, the percentage was? Was it like three big families that were just like, no. I, I don't like, as far as church members, but what started to happen was his students at the school started to go to the church. And that started kind of the groundswell for it. But they faced persecution as well. They were called Sims because they were adhering to Charles Simeon's teaching and they were mocked as well. Those were a hot 50 years in England because it was the abolition movement. It was the English changing of their whole government system, it was wow. people's idea of civil rights developing. He was 
preaching from the Bible and talking about what God looks at as the value of humans, that would be a hot time. <laughs> they probably didn't want to hear that. Right? And what what can we do when we encounter resistance? I mean, it kind of just gave us the answers from First Peter three. Mm-hmm. Give a reason for our hope. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we think we we hit resistance like, well, something must be wrong. Like I'm doing something wrong. Simeon didn't feel like that. You're going to hit resistance if you're preaching God's word. It's always a good idea to check that, though. Oh, absolutely. You know, and you know, especially maybe I am doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, maybe I am. You know, check with someone you trust. You know. Yeah, great idea. Yeah. yeah. But you know, if you're not, then you know, sometimes you are. You know, what are you suffering because of something you're doing out of pride or yep. something like that? Yes. Or yeah. are we suffering for? Um, you know, because of, of who who we are in Christ yep. and what we're True. putting forth, the message we're putting forth of the gospel. Yeah. Searching our hearts to see if it's right. a sin involved that's happening or are we just, people just, because in so doing, like Jesus said to the disciples, they're not really resisting you, they're resisting me. Right. So are people resisting me and right. my sin? Right. Or are they resisting Christ in me? Right. That's okay. The first yeah. one isn't. Right. Yeah, good point. He also wanted to be known as biblical above everything else. He, he refused to get drawn into theological conflict. And there's a very, very famous, uh, when we talk about the old debates of Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? He was, he was right on the forefront of that in many ways because he was a card-carrying Calvinist. Um, but also, you had the, the Methodist awakening. You had John Wesley running around, right? To Rhoda's point, there's just this cauldron of things that's happening. And so Piper reports an example of how he lived out this council is seen in the way he conversed with John Wesley. He tells the story himself. Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have sometimes been called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. (laughs) (laughs) But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature? So depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not put it first in your heart? He responds, yes, I do, indeed. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? And he says, yes, of course, solely through the righteousness of Christ. But sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? He says, no. Absolutely not. I'm saved from Christ from the first to the last. This is allowing them, uh, allowing then that you were first turned to the grace of God. Are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? And he says, no. What then are you to be held every hour and, and every moment by God as much as an infant in his mother's arms? And he says, yes, altogether I am. And is it all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to persevere until his heavenly kingdom? And he says, yes, I have no hope but in him. He says, then, sir, with your leave, I will put my dagger away, for this is all my own Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in the substance that I hold, and I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be the ground of contention between us, we will cordially reunite in those things in which we agree. Mm. That's how you handle conflict. <laughs> he, gave, he gave the tulip doctrine. Yeah. 
The idea of instead of just going immediately to battle, ask questions. Talk about your common ground first. Don't talk about where you're you're different, right? He was known as an evangelical Calvinist in that way. Um, he also started um, conversation parties with students. He would invite students over to his house on Friday nights and then sometimes on Sunday afternoons when they wouldn't let him back in the church. Um, and he would teach them how to preach. And there would be upwards of 80 students crammed in his house. And it said by the time he died, one third of all Anglican ministers in England had sat under his teaching at one time or another. He just had a massive propensity, propensity to teach the Bible. He kind of had a campus ministry. I mean, through the school. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you could definitely call it that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. One biography wrote, uh, one biographer wrote, what is his doctrine? In two words, it was Jesus Christ. All his preaching centered around Jesus. Why? Because the Bible centers around Jesus, right? And he says, my endeavor is to bring out scripture, what is there, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. So if there's a granddaddy of expositional preaching, besides like the Apostle Paul and Jesus, right? <laughs> Simeon might be pretty close. His personal scriptural study and meditation was four hours every morning, usually from 4 to 8 a.m. His steady biblical preaching overcame the resistance to his leadership, and he had three questions of every sermon. Does it humble the sinner? Does it exalt the Savior? And does it promote holiness? Good, good thoughts for us. Too, when you're listening to a guy like me or when you're listening to a podcast or whatever else. A good, good kind of little litmus test. A good balance in those questions. Does it humble the sinner? Does it exalt the Savior? And does it promote holiness? So, some observations and applications. What do we do when we are in conflict, theological controversy? Or Facebook debates. <laughs> what we should do is always go back to Scripture. Yeah. And see what the Lord teaches us. Yeah. And try to humanly fix it all the time. You know? Yeah. Yep. Social media is kind of a breeding ground for that kind of thing, right? Lots of theological debates are in the comment streams that should never, ever be in the comment streams. There's also a whole subculture on YouTube of heresy hunters. People just scour the internet for what Stephen Furtick said this time, or who did this, or <laughs> how dare Hillsong do that again, or whatever it is, you know, and then make a 45-minute video on it. So, not saying that's totally bad, because we have to be aware of what's going on in the church, but sometimes I think it just tips a little bit, right? Going after, you wouldn't see Charles Simeon doing that, for sure. Are we looking to align with a certain side? Our culture is so polemic at all times. That's it. You know, what are you? Are you on this side or that side? You know, and if you're on my side, you're good. If you're not, then you're wrong. Yes, I'm looking right. to align myself with Jesus Christ. There you go. <laughs> That's the side. That's yeah. the only side that matters. Yeah. And some of us, let's face it, we're prone to get sucked into a theological debate. We're prone to do that. But at, at what cost and mm. for what benefit? Right. Well, if you're looking to learn... That's one thing, but if sure. you're looking to um, to just convince somebody else that you're right, exactly, then that's probably the wrong motive. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
that's was, nearly uh, the goal of apologetics. I was listening to a podcast on the way home. I didn't finish it yet, but um, it was talking about false teachers and how you know we're very quick to call someone out as a false teacher, <coughs> and it could be a secondary or even a tertiary issue, and right. not like an issue of first level importance, yep. like the gospel, you know, and because they don't believe exactly how we believe right. on the end times or baptism or you know. Then we're yeah. automatically yeah. calling them out as a false teacher. Raging heretic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to understand the idea of theological triage. What is the most important thing? What is what is the first level issue? What is the second level issue? What's the third level issue? Very, very important. Do we underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the word and prayer? He didn't. Because I think if it were me, I would fall into the weakness and the trap of just being like, okay, how am I going to turn these people around? I'm going to have a five-point plan. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> I'm going to invite them over for dinner. Mm -hmm. We're going to be friends. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And he's just like, I'm going to pray and I'm going to preach the word. That's my plan. It might take 12 years, but they'll eventually come around Maybe or die. Maybe if he had them over for <laughs> dinner, though, it would have been a little quicker. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he did. I don't know. <laughs> So, so did he? Did he write about, um, or and did he point to specific scripture that he really relied on to have this very, uh, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, austere kind of reliance on a very simple, straightforward, because that's a very particular kind of response. He's not, he's not allowing himself to get drawn into yeah. theological <laughs> conflict. Yep. And he has, he has a very clear picture of, of. Preaching and praying as, yep. as the way forward. So is, does he point to scripture that, is, that he relied on to say that this is this is the way to go? I I don't know. Okay. Um, my first answer would be all of the Bible because he just knew it so well and he knew how to stitch it together in the big story of the Bible. Um, but I think he just learned the art of asking questions like Jesus asked questions. Like the Apostle Paul certainly know how to answer his opponents, right? Um, and he just had that faith that was so rock steady in the power of the ministry of the word to eventually change hearts. Um, one verse that I thought of is, is 1 Corinthians 15, and we always jump to verse 3, you know, the gospel of first importance, which is, which is good and we should, but the first two verses are very important. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold word, hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And that idea of Paul encouraging the church at Corinth that, yeah, you stand on that gospel. You stand on just the truth of the good news that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose from the grave and he's returning. Right? You stand on that, and that's the process of you being saved. But you're not, it's like you're not home yet, right? It's that already not yet tension, but you're still clinging to that. And there is, it, in a, it, he's kind of saying, there's not really a, any other way. Like you just, you just cling to Christ, and you persevere in the faith, and he will empower you to stand. And that's the gospel message, too. Since that's the word that I preach to you, that's the word that you continue. Dealing with conflict, kind of just continuing on that, his identity was first and foremost in Jesus Christ. So to answer your question, 
Justin, it was also just the, the theologicalness of uh, who he was in Christ. Um, he says, with this sweet hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men. Think about that. People have thrown rocks through the windows of your church, and you're enjoying much cheerfulness. But I have set at the same time and labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. And so in a sense, he's got a very healthy lack of caring for what people are saying about him because his identity is so secure in Christ. I was going to say that um, before. It's like he has a good understanding of who God is, and he has a good understanding of who he is because yeah. of Christ. Yeah. And he doesn't let all this outside shape that. Absolutely. His identity. Yeah. You know, and we're so quick to, I'm so quick, I'll point finger at myself, to be like a reflection on me and, and for forgetting very quickly who I am because of Christ yeah. and not because of what Joe Schmo thinks of me. Yeah, we all can fall into that trap. And he stayed very focused on where God had placed him because it's obvious yeah. that he was placed yeah. there. Um, yep. You know, and, and he stayed right. very focused on what he was supposed to do while he was there in spite of the opposition. Yeah. You know, yeah. so... Um, and I don't know what the average... Uh, tenure of a pastor is these days, but it's not very long. But people are always looking for like, well, the next bigger thing, or you know, yeah. it's not working here. Can I be yeah. better somewhere else? You yeah. know. And sometimes the problem is, you know, not that it's going to be better anywhere else because we still bring ourselves yeah. along <laughs> with it when we yeah. go somewhere else. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That's yeah. the escapist trap, right? Yeah. We all we all think things will be better if we sell our house and move to North Carolina or something. Right. 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 Every New Jerseyan's dream. Right? <laughs> but we're stuck here now. Um, it's one of the, I'm thankful for many things uh, with Southern Seminary, but one of them was they consistently beat into our brains, find a church, plant yourself there, preach the gospel, right. die, be forgotten. Sounds like <laughs> Charles Simeon. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So that, I, I would love to cultivate that attitude, and I hope that I am in my own brain. I certainly don't have aspirations of moving anywhere, but you know the idea that that's what it means to be a pastor is to until you are removed, <laughs> you know, until God says no, you're going here, and I don't really know how He would do that. Um, this is where you are. But a couple of things that Piper brought out too of what helped him deal with conflict was uh, he didn't listen to the rumor mill. He refused to try to figure out what people were saying about him and uh, what they thought of him. He dealt with issues face to face. Mm -hmm. He said, it is remarkable how much evil can be averted by doing things face to face. He didn't use Zoom? <laughs> Maybe if you couldn't read, get together face to face. They didn't send a passive aggressive text. <laughs> no. He didn't vague book. Vague book. No. Didn't no do any book. of that. He, uh, he received, we're going to talk about that on Sunday. He received rebuke and he grew from it. And he sought to live a life that was above reproach, especially in his finances, especially coming from kind of a well-to-do family. He, he, he just distanced himself from all that. So yeah, obviously wasn't in it for the power or the prestige or anything else. So some observations and uh, applications as far as us in dealing with conflict <laughs> besides all of it. <laughs> 
realize when you have pride issues. Realize when you have pride issues, when, yeah. When you have the sin of pride. Yeah. And I think because this, this Simeon gentleman, he, he stayed quite humble. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I right. mean, we are to, as it, it comes back to, it's amazing when I'm, that book that I'm reading, it yeah. talks about, you know, the scripture, you know, we are to humble ourselves like little children. Yeah. Or we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. So it's like, whoa, okay, what is, what's the Lord telling me here? Yeah. Jesus just said that last week, right? And he smacked his disciples down. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, mm -hmm. Let me show you who's the greatest in the kingdom. Yeah. Don't Absolutely. try to resolve conflict through texting. Never resolve <laughs> conflict through texting. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nope. Never. Yeah. I, I cut that off pretty quick usually. I'm like, this is an in-person. This is a coffee conversation. This is a something conversation. It's just, there's too much... It gets dicey real fast. You know? Goes back to that way back then, face to face work. Yeah. So yeah. It still needs to work Even today. Emails, you know. I mean, I, no. work, I work with someone, and everybody, the guy is terrible the way he sends his emails, you know. He has <laughs> terrible email etiquette. And, uh, you know, and people always Very take it the wrong one way. Of those. <laughs> you know, they think, like, this guy's a total jerk, you know? Yeah. No, he's just brief in his emails you know they're yeah <laughs> face to face yep face to face jesus is going to talk about that on sunday and to steal from it on sunday a little bit if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've gained your brother back but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus gives us the process for how to deal with conflict, how to deal with sin in the church. And we could bet that Mr. Simeon knew all about that, and he practiced it as well. All right, last but certainly not least. Did I have one more after this? No, that was it. Okay, so his balance. Um, so he, he we, we kind of hit it a, a couple times, right? The difference between pride and humility right and so on the backboard i have attempted to draw a little uh seesaw so to speak i like how you walked in when everybody was turning around <laughs> so what simeon tried to balance was two things right his sense of his own sinfulness which like the other six guys that we've looked at he was well aware of his own sinfulness and it drove him crazy but he also had to balance that with the sense of god's glory and grace and forgiveness right and so the idea is you try and balance that and the the ballast or the balance he said is humility humbling himself before god and and, and there's dangers on either side right and so if we just think if it goes like this where we are just all about our own sin and how terrible we are and how worthless we are and how whatever, you know, we're still actually thinking about ourselves so at that point. Right? Yes. <laughs> right? And then we, we're, we're all about God's glory, right? If it goes the other way, then, then we're all about God's glory and not so much about our own sinfulness. Then that's woefully out of balance too because then we don't really have a perception of our own sin. And, and what he tried to do is balance those two things. Uh, with humility being 
in the middle. He tried to he tried to grow downward in humility, he said, and he tried to grow upward in a sense of God's glory, in a sense of God's majesty and grace. Um, Piper had a good section too that I'll read for us. Three twenty. Um, this one guy, Handley Mule, who is one of his uh, biographers, captures the essence of Simeon's secret of longevity in this sentence. Before honor is humility. And he had been growing downward year by year under the stern discipline of difficulty met in the right way. And so you see how he even knew that all of that oppression in his church was helping to grow him and sanctify him. And he met it in the right way in order to do that the way of close and adoring communion with God. These two things were the heartbeat of Simeon's inner life, growing downward in humility and upward in adoring communion with God. But the remarkable thing about humiliation and adoration in the heart of Charles Simeon was that they were inseparable. Simeon was utterly unlike most of us today who think that we should get rid of, <coughs> once and for all, all feelings of vileness and unworthiness as soon as we can. For him, Adoration only grew in the freshly plowed soil of humiliation from sin. He actually labored to know his true sinfulness and his remaining corruption as a Christian. And you see what Piper's saying there is that the more that he understood the bad news, right, of his sin, the more he appreciated the good news of his Savior. And so we try and like think about, oh my gosh, you know, I have to cultivate this self-esteem about me, the high self-esteem and all that stuff. I have to eschew all these negative thoughts about myself. It's like, well, sort of, but we have to have a, a realistic view of our own sin because then that gives us a realistic view of our Savior. Right? He famously said, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. The idea that it serves a purpose. We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Communion kind of makes us taking communion. Yeah, taking it communion humbles, humbles me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To appreciate God's glory and His greatest gift for us. Yeah, yeah. You have to be humble. Yeah. And if you're not humble, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. That's why we try to give it some time of reflection. Right. We don't often have that. Just some times of silent reflection and meditation to understand the gravity of what it cost. Like, my sin is just not something that mistakes I make or something. Mm -hmm. My Savior bled and died. A couple of months ago, Len was reading, and yeah. he got choked up over yeah. communion. Yeah. And, yeah, we all should get choked up. Yeah. When you think of what Christ suffered, yep. I can't imagine. You sit there, jam a crown, crown of thorns on your head. Yeah. He was beat to the humiliation. He was beat. Beat to near death, right? Yep. And then hung on the cross. Yep. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, just yeah. And that's physical. Just think of all the taunting and, and the verbal abuse that he had. Yeah. Well, I think about the spiritually too. Like the sins of the world were placed mm -hmm. on his shoulders. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. The weight of that cross was nothing compared to the to, to the sin. Yeah. Uh, the way that, yeah. But. So we have to spend time thinking about what our sin cost in order to appreciate the glory and the goodness of God, right? And, and we're extremists. We'd much rather think more about one than the other. 
right? But we come by it honestly because there's lots of things we could put in there. What other things could we put on the on that seesaw that we need to balance in, in our Christian walks? What do you think? What other things need to be held in tension, right? There's a lot of things in the Bible that are held in tension. Maybe both uh, appreciating that God's gift is a free thing, mm -hmm. but that we should then also be working out our gratitude in our lives. Like sure. That has to be evident. There's nothing that you did to earn that gift, but then now we owe God everything, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What else? Other things you can think of that are held in tension that we need to hold in tension as Christians as we walk through? It's our gift, right? Yep. But yet, we need to spread the gospel, you know, Okay. to, to, to get make it mature uh, believers. Yep. More, we can't, it's not ours. It's it's, right. it's ours personally, but yet, right? we have to share it. And, I like to and, say it's personal, it's not private. Yeah, right? it, and, yeah. and that, that should balance, right? Because... We just can't, we're not supposed to keep it right. to ourselves. So it is something that's for us. And that, you know, you hit on something huge because that's a huge place where evangelical American Christianity has fallen down is it's about my personal relationship with Jesus. It's like, yes, but <laughs> it's also about the glory of God in saving sinners in the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to, exactly what you're saying. We've got to balance those two. And then that balances out, yep. you know, with, with Christ in the middle. You know, it just... Well, that, that's why we were made and created. Yeah, because one side could be all emotional him. and one other side is more... Yeah. Right, to glorify Him, but yet spread the gospel, spread His word, right? Yeah. That was the whole deal, right? Sure. Go out uh, from uh, from the Jewish to the Gentiles. Yep. And, yeah. Always meant to be global. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, Frank. Absolutely. Other stuff we hold in tension. Oh. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, that's, you know, it's yeah, a way of saying, sure. it, you know, I mean, that essentially. Yes, you know, we're a citizen of another kingdom, but we're right. here now. And but we're here now, right, exactly. And we have to relate to the people around us and we have to be doing the work of, if, if we're not doing that, if we're not making disciples of Jesus Christ here yeah. and now, that's you know, one of the things we're called to do. And if we can't relate to anybody here, yeah. we're always... Very true. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of them. I thought, of course, you know, the uh, Calvinism, Arminianism right. side of things, right? God is completely sovereign, yeah. but man is responsible. I was yeah. going to say that, too. You were? Yeah, I was. <laughs> God's the just and the justifier. God's just and the justifier. Right. God's... Holy and full of wrath, but he's also full of love and grace yeah. and forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Like on our in our in our daily lives, it's hard to balance graciousness and justice. Yeah. You don't have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's ongoing conversations. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> it's a running theme in my life. Um mm. it's like you wanna you wanna tell people when something's right. Or when they're wrong, or something, you know, like that. But you <laughs> right. can't, you can't just be like telling them what's wrong all yeah. the time. Yeah, <laughs> you have to balance that with good things every once in a while. Evidences of grace. Yeah, definitely. And you can see how toxic it is to our faith if we tip one way or the other all the time, right? In any of these things, right? So many things that uh, 
even just suffering and blessing. Like those yeah. things are held in tension. Like we're gonna have seasons in our life that are gonna be like, I just can't, I just can't catch a break. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is. And then we're gonna have times in our lives where it's like, yeah, things are kind of going okay. I feel pretty good, right? But you always gotta balance that with the reality that we're guaranteed nothing when God's there. And the balance of that is, you know, it's it's not gonna be humility that's always gonna balance those things, but it's gonna be God Himself and His sovereignty and His grace and His love. And, you know, we have to learn denominations shouldn't battle denominations. <laughs> you know, uh, it's really it, unfortunate because I was gonna start a gang war with the Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> That was going to be my announcement after this. <laughs> the Highlands Crips. <laughs> yeah. The thing that balances there, though, is the gospel. That needs to be like, sure. you know, kind of common ground. Yeah. 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 Look, at, look at how Simeon approached uh, Wesley. Right? Find yeah. the common ground. Let that balance. Hyper this or hyper that. Yeah. There's no balance. Hyper grace is really bad. So it's hyper confidence. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Like, like, what can we agree on? You right. know what I mean? Right. Before we talk about it, automatically what, what will we disagree? Yeah. And then you can find out pretty quickly if we're talking about something that is a first level issue, second level issue. Second, yes. Issue. Yes. Like, you know, Jesus wasn't God. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're not going to have much more that we're going to agree upon after that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But if we're talking about baptism or we're talking about eschatology or we're talking about whatever else, right? Different things. So. Good stuff. All right. Well, that's Mr. Simeon. I hope that was an encouragement to you guys. I know it was for me just as a pastor just to read the longevity of it all and just the, the, the trust and the faith that he had in his word. I do believe that, you know, if there is a people who want to learn more about how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible, I don't know if it's called the Simeon it Trust. Is, I actually the skeleton or something. No, it's called the Charles Simeon Trust. Charles Simeon Trust. And they have a. It's track. like a free deal most of the time. Well, right? it's twenty bucks. Twenty bucks. But I just looked cheap. it up because I started it and never finished it. And um, but it, there's no end date, and you can do the courses. Yeah. Whenever, but there's so, one for women specifically. Okay. Um, and then there's a bunch of different other topics that you can do online. So it still carries on to this day. Yeah. You know his mm-hmm. love of. of Teaching people how to teach the Bible. Right? I think yeah. on his campus, uh, I don't think he had cry rooms or safe rooms. He was tough. I mean, he was tough. How, there was a section of the book that really thought a lot of people thought he was cranky. Well, right? but the power kind of, of God and the Holy Spirit. But how many other gentlemen that we talked about uh, had? Depression, yeah, and, and, and we're struggling with with some heavy duty. That's very true. Heavy duty. He's stuff. kind of a breath of fresh air, isn't he? Well, yeah. You say, well, yeah. You pulled this one out of the hat, and, and he's number one. I mean, <laughs> I mean, as far as psychologically and balanced. Yeah. You didn't have to like the song. Oh, <laughs> oh, true. Oh, true. Oh, well, yeah, that's <laughs> something coming from a woman. That, that's. I'm saying the key to yeah. happiness is wow. <laughs> wow. All women are bad. Wow. Men and women are bad. Talk to the young lady. My wife is different. Takes two to tango. Takes two to tango. And we better get out of this discussion <laughs> very, very quickly. Please <laughs> 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 balance. <laughs> 
Well, let me pray for us. <laughs> Father, thank you for this time, and thank you that we can laugh together. We thank you for those that have gone before us, and uh, Lord, may we have this balance um, between a lot of these things, Lord, but especially in our hearts, understanding the nature and the depth of our sinfulness, uh, but also the grace of your goodness and forgiveness. Uh, make us to be humble people. Make us to be those that are dependent on you, especially through your word and through prayer. Uh, continue to do the work at Highlands here through studying your word, through prayer, through the ministries of this church, deepen people here. Uh, cause us to be dependent on you. Uh, may we imitate uh, Charles Simeon in the ways that are good and glorifying to you and edifying to us. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.